from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 21, recorded June 28th, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by the director of strategy, Julia Alexander from Parrot Analytics. Julia, hi. Jason, hi. I wait. I feel like I have to preemptively say this because I know our listeners are going to be wondering. I need one more week to come up with your perfect name for this okay. podcast. Okay. All right. My, I am the titleless me. Uh, titleless me. Titleless. Yeah. Just titleless. No titles here yet. That's okay. I don't. I'm working on it, but I'm consulting my much more creative friends. I'm the guy who reads the intro. That's fine. I can, I can, it's just, it just does what it says on the tin. It's going to be there by the next episode when we have a very, very special episode. It's going to be just nothing but the title will be stowed upon you. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, let's get to some follow up before we dive into the many, many topics we have. Um, we talked about release days last time about Obi Wan moved, and you, you talked, I thought. Um, really well about the idea of creating habits in when am I opening the app? What day do I open the app to see what's new? And keep creating those habits in people and how that's an important way for streaming services to make connections with their audience and keep connections with their audience. So what happened? Umbrella Academy <laughs> came out on a Wednesday on Netflix which is not their usual day. And you tweeted, it's a smart play to move big TV shows to non-Fridays as the studio film side shift strategy to have fewer but bigger titles. I imagine having TV on another day would get multi-week use, but without proper communication, I imagine many people will still assume it comes out on Friday. What do you think about this? This, uh, what you know, Obi-Wan on a Friday, Umbrella Academy on a Wednesday, what's going on? I mean, it definitely feels like stricter competition where you have someone like Reed Hastings, who's the co-CEO of Netflix specifically, you know, he mentioned this after I tweeted about it, um, which is not to say I influenced it. It was just like, it was funny because it was similar kind of thinking where he specifically brought up the fact that he does not like that Disney owns Wednesday, right? Like, and and it's, it's a concept that everyone's aware of, like Disney owns that day. And so I think if you're on the Netflix side, you have a couple of big issues you're trying to figure out. Well, and how do we get people to use our app more consistently so that way the value perception for that customer is automatic and is there? Two, how do we ensure that our Fridays feel like big event days, especially on the studio side as we start to make fewer but bigger movies, more selective movies, as we try to figure out our blockbuster strategy, both theatrically and on the streaming service? Like, how do we ensure that Friday is kept? to be competitive with other movie releases um, instead of just streaming releases. And then two or three, rather, you know, you want your TV shows to kind of find more space and the way to find more space is to have them land on different days. So a show like Umbrella Academy that is going to have a similar audience base as an OE one or as a Ms. Marvel um, going up on a Wednesday and potentially taking away some of that, those eyeballs from Disney um, is really strong, but exactly what we're, we're, we're talking about, it's really difficult because Netflix has spent the last six, seven, eight years really, you know, getting people into the mindset of there is new stuff on Friday. I really only open Netflix on Fridays, like, because I know something is going to be there. I know that's when new stuff comes out. So, you know, I'm extremely clued into this universe as are you, Jason. And I didn't know that Umbrella Academy was coming out Wednesday. I genuinely thought it was I saw a friend tweet it um Alex Zalban who works at Decider I saw him tweet which are you going to watch first tomorrow and Umbrella Academy was in this poll on Twitter and I was like Umbrella Academy doesn't come out tomorrow and I looked at it and I was like oh no yep it absolutely does so 
I would have been two days late to it. I'm sure a lot of other people would have been two days late to it. And like in the long scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal because Netflix kind of looks at Wednesday through Sunday, Monday for their first week. But at the same time, trying to get people to move or, or to have the innate understanding of when something comes to a streaming service in the same way that NBC was NBC Thursdays in the same way that like, you know, that they figured out how to really get that branding right. It takes a lot of communication. And I think this is where Netflix really has constantly struggled. They don't market like it can compare to other companies. They don't spend a lot on marketing. And it's like, that's something where you really have to get people to understand that you've got to open this app on a Wednesday to get the new show or else they're going to go to Disney because they're already taught to do that. Um, but I do think strategically the more that Netflix gets into releasing shows on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and away from Friday and really positioning Friday as this big event day, like you have Stranger Things as a big event, you have uh, the, the Gray Man as a big event, like whatever it is. I think that really works in competing with a box office and competing with kind of these larger, larger productions. And then have the rest of the week to fill out your TV schedule and find ways to really make it so that people are opening that app every single day or every other day. But it, it just takes communication to get people to do that. Yeah, I, I, I th- see these things pushing against each other a little bit. The the idea that uh, you want to create habits and there's value in creating habits, but you also don't necessarily want to cede uh, any space to your competitors if you yes. can avoid it. So uh, NBC benefited greatly for a very long time from owning Thursdays. They own Thursdays for a couple of decades. It's not yeah. bad. Not a bad place to be. Um, also... Uh, is it right for me to wonder if this is actually a little bit of a tit for tat thing where Disney moved their show to Friday? So Netflix moved their show to Wednesday. Just I, I, I think I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think that but to your exact point, like just from a minute ago, where it's this idea of you don't want to give your competitors space and you don't want and you're also trying to figure out branding. You want to own the day. But these things are happening. All of these, you know, conversations that happened in the linear space and have, that have happened in the theatrical space about what well, we're talking about is counter programming and trying yeah. to figure out how you do that. It has never really occurred that's the way I say occurred has ever really occurred within streaming because for a long time, it was just Netflix. So Netflix got to do what Netflix was going to do. Everyone else came out and kind of followed Netflix, like Amazon and Hulu were doing Friday releases. Like it was, everyone kind of said, well, if Netflix is going on Friday, we should go on Friday. Then you have Disney and HBO max who come along and, Peacock and Paramount Plus. And the thing that all four of these companies have in common to, to an extent, some are more than others, is that they've got um, cable and broadcast to, to figure out. Like they're also, they're like, we can't have, you know, Game of Thrones, whatever, House of the Dragon go up on a Thursday uh, on HBO Max and then on Sunday on HBO, like it, it becomes a whole complicated ordeal. So they had to figure out ways to you know, move about and say, okay, well, HBO Max originals are Thursday and we keep HBO Sunday. You know, how does that actually play for us strategically? And owning those days, but also competing with our competitors. Disney does the same thing, right? Disney goes, we kind of don't necessarily want to do Fridays anymore. We want to own Wednesday. Also, we do movies. Like we want our, our, we want people to go see Lightyear and we want them on the same week to open up the app and watch the Pixar short or or to watch, you know, Miss Marvel or whatever it might be. And so I think they're figuring out how to strategically plan within their own companies. And then to your exact point, you know, what is everyone else doing? Okay, well, if they're going to move this here, then I as Netflix, I'm going to move my thing here. Like I'm going to try to compete. I know we have a similar audience base for the show. Like, let's see, let's see if it works. Like, let's experiment. So I think I said on our last podcast, we're in this really, really fun moment of experimentation within streaming that we haven't really seen from a content programming strategy side. Like we've seen it 
from a, a launch side, like all these companies that have launched their streaming services. And now we're really into the nitty gritty of like, okay, well, how do we capitalize upon the $6 billion investment that we're doing on content? We want to make sure that it's going up against, well, against eight, nine different competitors. And we know that the value economics are different than what they are on broadcast. And all these questions come into play. And it, the only way to figure it out is to experiment with what we once thought was holy gospel. And it turns out is not necessarily holy gospel. And so I think you're right, Jason. I think we'll see a lot more of this type of stuff just happen as more people kind of figure out, is there a day of the week that works better? What works with our, our cable counterpart or broadcast counterpart? What What is working for our competitors that we can take advantage of? Like Netflix moving to Wednesday. What is working What is what is working for us that we still want to push forward with? You know, Netflix keeping Fridays for events. Like there's just, we're going to see all those changes happen. And that is extremely exciting to watch. Yeah, I mean, movie. Uh, I mean, theatrical is something right now, but the idea that you know you have big movies that sometimes will go up against each other, and other mm-hmm. times will try to avoid each other, and that's part of competition. And you made a great point there about like Paramount Plus is a great example of you know Survivor comes on out on CBS on Wednesday night, so you know Paramount Plus Thursday is their day, but. If there's a CBS show that comes out another day, it's like, okay, I guess that's their day too, because yeah. like that's part of their programming and it's just how it is. So I don't know. I Part of me keeps thinking that in the end, um, a lot of streaming services, or the bigger ones especially, are going to try to colonize more days, right? They're going to try to just take over Tuesdays or take over Sundays or whatever they need. Just keep on adding uh and and I mean it, in a, or, or or attacking. Like I, I kind of want to use a meta. I mean, I use colonization, but I could use a war metaphor too. It really is like territory. There's only seven days, yeah. <laughs> so if you can uh, own some of them or disrupt your competition in others, you can have an advantage there. It's uh, it's kind of uh, you know, that's the that's the competitive business side of it. All right, we'll yeah. keep an eye on it. We'll keep an eye for weird. Uh, changes to people's release schedules and uh, report back about it. Um, I want to, you mentioned Pixar. We should talk about Lightyear at least a little bit. Lightyear, mm-hmm. uh, Pixar release opening theatrically after several Pixar movies were moved to Disney Plus. It had a bad opening. It had a big drop the second week. The reviews weren't that bad. They weren't great, but they weren't, they weren't terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and yet it just kind of like uh, for, for a Pixar movie basically flopped at the box office. So my questions for you are, you know, what does this mean going forward for Pixar and for Disney's strategy with Pixar? It ha- has something happened where uh, Pixar has been sort of devalued into a Disney Plus brand now and not and, and can't open theatrically? Or are we reading too much into one movie release in, you know, summer 2022? So part of it is the last is the last question, right? Like part of it is, are we trying to figure out the future of a massive studio at Disney based on one underperforming film? You know, Pixar has, I think, 26 or 27 films at this point, three or four really underperformed. The rest have all been really big hits. And I think because of that insanely impressive hit ratio, it gets whenever a Pixar movie underperforms, it's kind of like, oh, like, what, what does this mean? And we always end up reading too much into it. But On the other side of the equation, there are very important issues that have been brought up over the last year, year and a half, two years with Pixar that are now trickling into this moment right now. And then the biggest one is audience training, right? Like we trained audiences or and by we, I mean, Disney, Disney trained audiences to kind of expect Pixar on Disney plus. And now Disney is training audiences to expect 
any type of big movie on Disney plus after 45 days, like that audience training does have an effect on how people therefore view what becomes an essential movie to go out and watch. And if you're, if you're your family of four and you're taking kids out, like not only is COVID happening, although it's much less of an issue, I think there was a recent study that said like 90% of Americans are like, feel comfortable going back to theaters again, which is great. Um, but you know, COVID still happening. The, the vaccines for kids are just, just starting to roll out, but also if your kid is not necessarily super excited about Lightyear, you know, they're not going to bug you to go watch it. If they're not bugging you to go watch it as much as like, you're like, I'm just going to take my kid to watch it. Cause Oh my goodness. Like I did, we just need to go. Uh, you can wait the 45 days. Cause also there's other stuff on Disney plus that they can watch. And your kid might be much more into saying, I'd rather go watch Sonic two. I'd rather go watch the other guys. I'd rather go watch, you know, even Jurassic world. Like if you have older kids who are into Pixar still, but you know, they're old enough to go watch the the Jurassic world movies. Like I want to go see the dinosaur movie. And so not only is there this base of competition, but you've trained your audience to say like, this is not necessarily a high price thing for me. It's going to be on Disney plus in 45 days. I can just wait. So because the movie was kind of difficult to market. Like people were like, well, this is Buzz Lightyear, but it's not, you know, it's not Tim Allen, Buzz Lightyear. It's not really a Toy Story movie. It's like somewhat related, but also not like no one really understands what the movie's about. Um, Because of that, because of the fact that it was going to be on Disney plus in 45 days. And I think because of the fact that the competition was really tough, both on streaming and in theatrical Lightyear just didn't have enough going for it to really push people back to theaters. Like if we look at the numbers on it, I think it was like 88.8 million cumulative gross domestic at the box office within 10 days. That's like the lowest performance of a, of a, of a Pixar movie. That's like under cars three, which I think within the same period did about 94, $95 million domestically. Um, You know, it's still important to have that movie in theaters. Like it it has a, a stronger international uh, release, which, which we kind of expected, but it's not performing the way that we expect a Pixar movie to perform. And so I think the inevitable question that has come up is what does this make Pixar? Is Pixar the direct to video, which is, you know, direct to streaming brand for Disney Plus? And my assumption is that it is not because when they put out Encanto 2 in theaters, that movie is going to do insane numbers. Because kids right. are going to be like, I love Encanto. That movie started as a Disney. Well, it started as a theatrical thing, but found its audience on Disney Plus. But right. when they release it in theaters, like I'm sure that movie is going to get a full 45 day run. To be clear, that's Walt Disney Animation, right? Not Pixar. They have two animation studios, yes. Yes. which is an issue. But I mean, I think the dynamic is the same for both of them, which is, yes. is an animation release just a Disney Plus release or is it theatrical? And I don't think the track record of either Disney Animation Studios or Pixar would suggest that they're incapable of opening a movie just because one movie didn't open very well, right? It doesn't it doesn't track to me. They have too much of a, a a successful track record with some of their releases, including some that that went to streaming but actually were really well regarded and might have done better theatrically. So right. yeah, it seems like this is really premature. Right. I mean, that's that's exactly it. So yes, thank you. Encanto is Disney Animation, but yeah, like that audience, like which they have both yeah. with Pixar and Disney Animation. If there is inherent interest from kids to go and watch this movie, like kids will drag their parents to theaters and families will go watch this movie. Then they'll watch it again and again on Disney plus when it comes out. And I think with Lightyear, there is a sign of, of understanding from audiences that if they're not going to go watch it within the first two or three weeks, it's going to be on their Disney plus service three weeks later. It's not like what it used to be when, if they didn't go watch in the first two weeks, like they'd have to wait for it to hit, you know, it would go through the 70 days in theaters. Then it would be on VOD. You don't want to pay 20 bucks for it. Then it was like digital. And then it was, 
uh, finally it ended up on like HBO or it ended up on like Netflix. Like it ended up somewhere. And it was like, yeah. a, it was like, you know, it was like 140 days later you, or you got, you got to, or, or like a hundred days later, you had to go watch that movie. Now, if you don't go in the first two weeks, you're probably not going to go for the next three weeks. Cause it's good. But by that time, like clearly your demand is not at the peak where it's like, I have to watch this movie right now, which by the way, is the key for theatrical in 2022 is yeah. do I have to watch this movie right now? And do I need to see it in the theater? Uh, and like Disney has trained its audience to say with Pixar a lot, like, no, because like Luca was on there. Um, Soul was on Disney plus like all the, all these movies just went straight to um, turning red, just straight to Disney plus. Mm-hmm. And like those movies, may have done well in theaters like we don't know and i think they looked at Lightyear and said well this is tied to toy Story, so it's a franchise movie so it feels a little bit safer and i think what is abundantly clear is that that does not necessarily mean it is safe and that is a daunting question for disney it's like okay is this just a one-off or does this mean that our franchise power at pixar is also in question and my gut assumption it is is it's a one-off there was a lot going on with Lightyear that just made it a rough kind of release and the competition was strong but i do think going forward if you were to do like Finding Nemo 3 or like whatever, whatever it was that Pixar would do, I think it would find an audience. And I also think a movie like Turning Red, if it was really theatrical, theatrically would find an audience. Like I think yeah. Luca would have found an audience. And so I think we put a lot of pressure on certain movies to kind of be the fortune, you know, teller of what, what is set to come. My, you know, to, to end this long rambling rant, my assumption is that this is a lot. It's a loss for Disney. We know that or not a loss, but they did not do as well as Disney wanted it to do. But Pixar is not going to become a direct to video um, a brand. And in order to ensure that it's not Disney really has to really has to commit to keeping Pixar in in, in theaters, because if not, if they spend the next two, three Pixar movies direct to video, your audience will know. And, and that is going to inevitably hurt the future box office of every other Pixar movie, because you've now trained them to expect this type of film on Disney Plus for eight dollars a month. The uh, we got a letter uh, from Brett from Seattle who who asked a question that we've touched on for the most part. But like, what impact he said? Do you believe shrinking theatrical windows have had on box office performance? Is it possible Lightyear would have had a stronger run if so many Pixar films hadn't already gone to Disney Plus, and Encanto had a theatrical window longer than thirty days? I love your mother's Brett from Seattle, and I I I feel like we've covered it to a certain point, but I just wanted to mention something you said about demand from the kids um this is like the marshmallow experiment like you know kids of a certain age are not they don't want to wait for the second marshmallow they just want to eat the marshmallow now and i think that there's this sort of pressure of like are we as a family are we going to go see this movie or not and as a parent i think that if you aren't feeling the pressure and maybe the kids feel this way too but as a parent if you're not feeling the pressure you know that in three weeks or four weeks it's going to be on disney plus and so you don't have to worry about it so i think it makes a difference but i think it's in this it's in this uh it's not a, a thing that's a hundred percent of cases, right? It's like a yeah. little narrow wedge of cases where the it used to be that the you know, it's the it's it's one side of the bell curve of demand where there's interest but it's not like super interest and used to be like yeah okay maybe you go week two or week three because there's nothing else to go see and if you don't catch it like you said it'll be ages before you get a chance to see it and that like wavering interest i feel like that's the stuff that's just gotten chopped off where it's just like if you don't care enough to see it right away you're you're just gonna wait and then it's gonna show up on disney plus i just had that i just watched doctor strange uh and the multiverse of madness last week and 
I had been meaning to go see it. And for various, you know, family reasons and, and scheduling reasons, we went a couple of weeks without having seen it. And I thought, ah, oh, geez, maybe I should go see Doctor Strange this weekend. At which point somebody, they, they announced, oh, well, next weekend it's going to be on Disney Plus. And I was like, well, forget it then. Right. So there, I went through that, pra- that, that pilgrimage of how much do I want to see this movie? And at the point where I literally would have seen it that weekend i just put it off another week because i knew it was coming to disney plus and and that that is the the biggest question right so to answer brett's first part like the shrink the shrinking theatrical window was inevitable all covid did was accelerate it most like every single movie for the most part they're very very few exceptions make 98 percent of their revenue within the first 30 to 45 days so like they don't need to be in theaters for 70 days like and and this was something that they've been pushing for because of this data for years and years and years and then finally COVID happened and it kind of accelerated something that would have happened in six, seven years into a year. Like it just kind of really worked out. But to Jason's excellent point, like that, that is the point. It is how much does Disney potentially lose throughout those first five, four to five weeks when it's in theaters on people saying, I know this is going to be on Disney plus within the next, within 45 days. Do I necessarily need to go watch this in theaters or am I happy here? I saw a tweet from Joe Adelian, who we often um, talk about, quote on this podcast. He works at Vulture, writes the buffering newsletter. And he tweeted about how in the last weekend he watched the Downton Abbey movie on Peacock and Doctor Strange on Disney+. Plus. I was like, what a great weekend. Like, I enjoyed both yeah. of them. They were great and I was happy. And I saw, a, you know, a, a Twitter pal of mine, a guy named Dave Poland, who said, this is like, this is the concern though. Like, like this is where P- it's like, oh, I don't necessarily need to go for these huge movies that companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on um, and need to generate that back in revenue to support it going forward because they're like, oh, like, I pay for Peacock and I pay for Disney+, Plus, so therefore it's fine. And it's not necessarily driving additional. Well, we don't know. We don't know. But my assumption is that they're not driving the exponential levels of subscribers needed on those platforms to make up for the potential loss, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue on the theatrical side. And we know that streaming isn't profitable. So from the strategic point about, you know, what's happening with theatrical, what's happening with streaming, it's not just like, okay, we cut it down to 45 days and now there's losses. Like cutting down to 45 days is the smartest thing they could do. Like they don't need to be paying, you know, to be printing stuff, to be in theaters for another 30 days if they're only going to make another two, $3 million. But the idea of like, hey, we are marketing this as you can watch this movie in 45 days. That is the benefit of Disney Plus. At the same time that you are marketing your films as something you have to go watch in theaters creates a really conflicting um, um, uh, option for consumers. And I think a lot of people like Joe, uh, like Jason, like myself are like, ah, I don't really need to go see this in theaters. You know, and I'm a huge I know Jason, and I both are. we both love going to see movies in theaters. But with that option, it becomes this moment of like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I'm already paying eight bucks a month for this. Like, it's fine. Like, I'm just going to watch it here. I don't necessarily need to go see it in theaters. And I think that is where you'll see a lot of the analysts and the distribution teams and the strategy teams and the finance teams really try to figure out, is this more harmful than good? Or if we look at the long run, if we project over the next five years, do we get to a point where having these movies 45 days on the streaming service is both profitable for us on the streaming side and filmed at theatrically continue to be profitable? And how does that look for us? I think that is the biggest question. And there's no, no one has the right answer. It's too soon. Like we're in this experimentation mode. Um, but we do know theatrical is extremely important for these movies, bottom line finances. Uh, they can't just move everything to streaming all this, all the time. Even the HBO Max project popcorn stuff. 
And Jason Kyler was very, very upfront about being like, this is like, we're going to, in 2021, we're going back to, uh, or excuse me, in 20, 2022, we're going back to the, like theaters. Like we're going to have these movies in theaters for 45 days and they're going to HBO max. They need to be there. But what has changed is the consumer, be- consumer behavior. And if that isn't a irrevocable change, now there's questions about like the very foundation of economics in Hollywood. Um, so yeah, TBD on <laughs> what that all means. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to another topic. Um, You were quoted in a story at The Verge by Alex Kranz called There Has to Be a Better Way to Binge. It's something that we've, again, touched on here, but I like uh, Alex's uh, thesis is basically something uh, that we've talked about a lot, that these are software platforms, that it's not just a TV dumb TV channel, that you've got a sophisticated theoretically app running behind it. You have a lot of things that you can do to make the process different, to reinvent how people watch stuff. And sometimes we're underwhelmed by that. And mm-hmm. uh, the line in the story that uh, that I really liked is the idea was that streaming would give us more choice, not only in content, but in how we watch the content, yet instead of new ways to engage with the shows we want to watch, the streaming services are focused on acquiring new franchises or pumping millions into established franchises. Concern for the actual experience seems to have taken a seat in the third row of the car. And Alex brings up things like, which I, I I thought were really clever, like fan watch lists. He mentions the original Star Trek series. A friend of mine, uh, did this with the Clone Wars at clonewars.watch. Wouldn't it be fun if if a fan could say, you know, click here to add this playlist to Disney Plus? Um, or, or something Alex mentions is an intermingling of connected series, so like Buffy and Angel, or maybe the Berlantiverse for the CW, and how there's all sorts of uh, possibilities for... Uh, changing how you engage and saying, oh, I'm going to do a rewatch in this different or episode order. And won't that be interesting? I will point out Disney Plus does a little bit of this. There is a Marvel mm-hmm. Connected Universe timeline order, which is fun because it starts with like Captain America. I guess technically doesn't it, it might start with the Eternals. Uh, Ca- Captain America is there. Captain Marvel is very early because that's set in the 90s, right? Like they do it in in this timeline order. So you can watch the MCU that way if you want to like but basically, Alex's big point, and you uh, were brought in by Alex to uh, to to uh, basically pump up the arguments because you make them too. Is uh, this all should be better? Like they they need to make an effort on the on the organization and software end here. It doesn't have to all be just about pouring money into that giant. Uh, project or that giant franchise a part of this is putting money into your experience and your tech team and your curation and the things that make the internet sort of powerful that you maybe aren't taking advantage of like fan watch lists and other ways of of binging content that are not the the single way that's been prescribed uh by so many streaming services today so i i wanted to mention it i don't know if you have more thoughts about this topic but it's a great one that it's definitely one that has been bothering me that that there there's so little seemingly so little investment i know we've gotten letters about it like not that there is an investment in the in the tech side and in the curation mm-hmm. side, but that it seems like an afterthought a lot of the time. Right. And and yet it can provide a whole lot, again, maybe not to to keep to get people to subscribe, but to maintain and get people using the catalog content in a different way and make that stuff more valuable by putting a little effort into it that just is lacking right now, most places. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much more to say. I think you 
summed up how I feel. And I think how Alex feels and clearly how you feel uh, very, very beautifully. But the only thing I'll add is that the promise of streaming a lot, you know, alongside the a la carte option, alongside the getting away from the bundle, the promise of streaming and the promise of, you know, technology post, you know, the internet, but also like post, you know, the iPhone coming out, like the app store. The idea is that there's this intimate connection to what you are watching, to what you are playing. There's, there's an intimate ability to and an easeability to do something that was just not possible before. It was taken out of your hands. And with technology and with the internet and with Netflix and, and services like Disney Plus and streaming, which you can do on your laptop, which you can do on your tablet, on your phone, on your, on your TV that you can like better control smart TV. The idea that we are still restricting this intimate ability to give people control over how they want to watch things over, which creates stronger adoration for your service, which creates this feeling of I'm investing my time into this platform that has my favorite shows and films. And because I'm investing my time into it, I'm going to spend more time with it. I'm going to continue paying for it. I'm going to talk about it with friends, like everything that comes with the intimacy of technology over the last 15 to 20 years does not actually exist on streaming. And it's such an, I won't say easy, but it's such a mind boggling question as to why they have not focused on it. And the only thing I can think of is that Hollywood, um, much like the, like, like the legal system is behind like 20 years. Like they're always kind of playing catch up in a lot of ways. And so they're playing catch up to not to Netflix in terms of Netflix's success, but in terms of Netflix being a tech first oriented company and then having, and now, you know, equally content focused, but they started off as tech focused. They started off with this idea of like, how do we create a really great experience for watching? And now the thing they have to catch up to is YouTube and TikTok and Twitch. Like now what they have to catch up to is like, I want to feel this control. I want to feel this sense of intimacy. I want to feel this sense of, of ownership over the, over this thing I'm paying for because it's so easy to do with our technology these days. And because I'm used to it on all these different other apps that are also content and entertainment based apps. And so I think once the product teams are given more power to really focus on a user experience that is equal to user experiences on other apps that are tend to be user generated content based, but are still first and foremost entertainment, you know, video first entertainment uh, um, content uh, um, apps. Then I think we get into this really interesting scenario of like, well, what else can streaming be? You know, it's not just like, uh, like fan lists. Like, it's like, you know, someone in our letter recommended, what if they were to do something where you could have, you know, a, a bunch of uh, creators who are like handpicked and who could do really cool after episode stuff, who could do really cool explainer videos and you incorporate that into the app. And then you create yeah. a really interesting way to watch that with like people, you create fan groups, like the way to take entertainment and then make it intimate. And then to make people feel like they're invested in it is the best way to make sure that people are going to stick with your app on top of having, of course, on always number one, having the best content always, always that's number one. But then you have to have the delivery and the and and the um, creative stuff for for users to feel like okay, this is something special in a world where there's a lot of ways to watch a lot of different things. Like at the end of the day, what they want is access to the shows, but then they want to be able to order it in a certain way. They want to be able to queue stuff up. They want to be able to organize it into a playlist. They want to be able to share a playlist with their friend. If you're going to, you know, Hey, you're coming over for a movie night. You got to watch these three shows from this episode or from this, th these three shows and like these two episodes. And it's really going to help set the mood, like being able to do what Spotify does. The fact that you don't have that on, on Disney plus or, or Netflix, like 
all these, these things are just really bizarre to me. And the only answer I have is that they're still focused so hard on figuring out the content is right and how to deliver that content without insane buffering issues mm. that it's like, yeah, we'll get to these things. Like eventually, like these are on our list, but we just, we're, we're in triage mode. Like we're, we're just going through what we need to be going through. So I'm hopeful that it gets to that point. Cause that is what the promise of like technology and the internet and what, which, which is what streaming yeah. is based on. Like that is that promise. Yeah, it's a little too old. Even now with streaming, it's still a little too like old TV to me. Yes. And that's the thing that I know that bugs both of us and that definitely was bugging Alex Kranz. The idea that uh, where's the tech innovation side of this? And, uh, you know, I get it that, yeah, there, a lot of this stuff is just, look, we're trying to just get our app to work right. Mm-hmm. Like the HBO Max app was a disaster and they just launched a recently a much better brand new version yes. of it that you may not even not- notice. But uh, if you look closely, the interactions are completely different and it's actually a lot better. But like, I do think sometimes it comes down to the fact that these are the CEOs of entertainment companies. And honestly, Bob Chapek, for all of the bad things I think about him sometimes, at least he comes from parks. So in some ways, he's more focused on the customer experience. But I think a lot of times these entertainment industry executives are so focused on the unit of content and not on the delivery of it, even now culturally, because it used to be somebody else's problem to deliver it. And it's their problem now. They own it. And if they're not properly funding their tech people and their user experience people and people who can experiment with their metadata and with uh, putting things out on the Internet in clip form and all sorts of other things that are not part of the making of the product, but are part of uh, the dis- distribution and sharing of the product, uh, they, they should they're making a mistake and they should fund that stuff more because I, I think that they undervalue something that's actually highly valuable and making mentioning Netflix is a good point. Netflix, as long as it retains and part of its identity as a tech company, it's got at least a leg up there. But sometimes I think even Netflix is sort of seduced by the unit of content that like we're making a deal with actors and writers and producers. And now there's a show. It's like, okay, you got a show, but if you just drop it out there and say, here's a show, you're missing a lot of opportunity to do better. So exactly. I hope they do better. I hope they do better. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the many ways to franchise. We've talked about franchises here a lot, especially about uh, Netflix trying to find a franchise. We've talked about Disney Plus and the Marvel and Star Wars franchises I want to talk about Game of Thrones, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who, you know, Game of Thrones uh, was a, was a, one of the biggest shows of all time. Uh, honestly, maybe even arguably the most popular show of all time. But in the end, people got turned off and were unhappy. A lot of people were unhappy with the last season. Um, uh, and and disclosure here, Julia and I like Game of Thrones, so we're we're not going to argue about the how it ended, and we're not going to argue about like is this like Star Wars where it's a franchise people love or Avatar, which is a franchise that the the studio keeps wanting to shove down our throats, and yet nobody seems to care. We'll see how that goes. I, I wanted to talk about this bigger picture of like what is a franchise and different ways of doing franchises, and it's because of a a story that you linked to about how they're doing apparently developing a Jon Snow spinoff with Kit Harrington, which would mm-hmm. be interesting because all the other Game of Thrones stuff they're talking about is oh we'll play in George R R Martin's uh you know basically history books that he invented for Westeros and we can create all these different kinds of stories that are a thousand years in the past. That's what house of the dragon is, right? Is a, is a prequel series, but then there's 
then there's this, which is like, well, wait a second. I thought that story was over. And they're like, well, what if, but what if we see what Jon Snow does next? I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Um, this is remind, uh, House of the Dragon coming out August 22nd, by the way. And, and according to the Hollywood Reporter story that you linked to, this development news means there are now seven Game of Thrones projects in the works uh, in addition to House of the Dragon. So there's a lot going on here. And this is what I wanted to talk to you about, which is I feel like a lot of this stuff is covered as if they're all going to be HBO series. Like, you know, we're going to do 10 episodes and then we're going to renew it for another 10 episodes and it's going to be an HBO series. And I had this thought, which is... Is that the right way to do it? Is HBO, and I don't know if they are, but is HBO thinking more broadly about something like Game of Thrones? Because when you look at Marvel and Star Wars, it's not all we're going to do this for as many seasons as we can. Some of it is it's a miniseries. We don't know if this is going to come back at all. And some of them come back and some of them don't come back. And they're happy to do like a little like Obi-Wan. I know it came from a film project, but Obi-Wan Kenobi is a six episode miniseries that's what it is it's not meant to be season one of five of obi-wan kenobi and i had that thought about this Jon snow thing where i thought do, you know should we be talking about it as oh Jon snow's gonna have his own tv show and for 10 episodes every year we're gonna find out what happens next in game of thrones versus sort of like oh i've got a good pitch for Jon snow and what happens afterward it's gonna be six episodes and it's a miniseries and then we're done and uh I don't I'm curious to know what you think about this, because it just struck me that like whether it's the reporting or whether it's HBO's own assumptions internally, it feels like when we talk about something like Game of Thrones as a franchise, I keep getting the sense that it's just being put in an HBO development pipeline and that maybe they aren't thinking as broadly about it as Disney does with Marvel and Star Wars. What do you think? Yeah. So I think the first thing to point out or to add on top of what you're exactly what you're saying, I mean, these are in development in development does not necessarily mean they're going there. You know, the concept is like we are developing a project and we could scrap it, which is what HBO already did with the other Game of Thrones series. They spent like $20 million on it and then scrapped it. Like they, they don't, you know, Casey Bloys, who's the head of HBO and HBO Max is not going to put out some terrible Game of Thrones show. And at the same time, I do think there is this innate pressure for HBO under this large umbrella to figure out ways that they can franchise some of their extremely big mainstream shows. And to put that into perspective, HBO makes a lot of series that people really, really love. HBO is kind of still, you know, it's the most revolutionary network in television uh, history in terms of, you know, prestigious dramas and what they managed to accomplish in 30, 40 years. Um, but HBO series are not necessarily mainstream hits. Like they're not, you look at something like Yellowstone or you look at something like The Walking Dead. Those are really, really big mainstream hits. If we look at what HBO does a lot of, you know, Succession has its audience. Euphoria is probably its closest to a big mainstream hit, actually, if we're, looking, if we're talking about it. Barry has its audience. The Righteous Gemstones has its audience. But these are not 10 to 12 million uh, uh, viewer episodes. Again, the exception, I think they're really being euphoria. But Game of Thrones was. Game of Thrones was a mainstream hit for HBO that drove exponential subscription uh, growth, which is important for them because they're a subscription-based company, a subscription-based network. Um, and it was this type of show that like really created a cultural zeitgeist in a lot of ways that The Sopranos did, um, but like The Wire never did, right? Like The Wire found its audience later, so did Deadwood. Like, like the, a lot of these shows that are really, really critically acclaimed and that we all love, 
we're not necessarily these massive, massive um, cultural zeitgeisty things. And so I think if you're HBO, and especially if you have a Warner Brothers partner uh, or brother, really, um, and especially when Zaz is coming in, the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, he's trying to figure out ways to almost effectively disney his company. That's why he's talking. He's had conversations with Bob Iger. He's talked to Alan Horn, who like oversaw all of the studio stuff at Disney over the last, you know, 15 uh, years, uh, if not a little bit longer, um, who oversaw a lot of Warner Brothers stuff before then. You know, like there's a very strategic way that Zaz is thinking about what he wants to do with his IP that he owns. And Game of Thrones is strong IP. And so I think there is this pressure for HBO to figure out how do we keep this going in a way that feels core to us, in a way that feels that we're still putting we're still putting uh, premium content out there. We're still putting out you know uh, quality content, not just quantity. Which you could argue Marvel is kind of and Star Wars especially are kind of putting out the quantity and, their, and the quality is maybe a little bit lacking at, the, at this point. Um, but how they do that is going to be really interesting. So I think to your exact point, Jason, I don't. Know if they want, you know, five seasons of a Jon Snow show. I don't think they necessarily want five seasons of all seven of these shows. They would be great if all seven of these shows were individual hits and they did five seasons. But I do think there's this idea of like, okay, well, can we do one as a, as a movie? Can we do one as a two and a half hour movie that lives on HBO Max? Like, what does that look like for us? And we have, you know, HBO does uh, original programming. You know, what if we do a two and a half hour movie? That that's that's the thing, and then that leads into a mini series, or that's something. What if we did an actual film that we released with Warner Brothers in theaters? Or, or what if we did, you know, really cool Game of Thrones branded documentary style thing, like whatever it might be. I think the question of like how, what if we do an animated show, like an animated Game of Thrones show in the same way that Star Wars Visions had, you know, it's animated. It was an, it was an anime series for Star Wars and that found an entirely different audience. And as we've talked about Clone Wars with the animation style. So I think all of those questions are are much more important than like what, you know, what characters are they developing? What world are they developing? Like they have the sandbox and they're playing within it. But we don't know is what what is the medium that is going to that these are going to take place? In? What is the genre? What is what is this um, TV? Is this a, the, a theatrical? Is this a HBO Max movie? Like what? How do you brand or branch out to create a franchise without just creating five or six different TV shows that then gets really overpopulated and really oversaturated and is going to lose part of its audience? Because inevitably, one of those will just not be great, and then that's a huge ding on kind of what they're trying to build. And so I think. We won't know this until we know exactly what shows move forward past the initial development phase, like which ones are actually going to go to series or which ones are going to go to whatever they're going to do with it. But I would be surprised if they were all live action, multi-season design shows. I think you're going to get a limited series live action. Yeah. There are getting- some animated in, in, in development, that's for sure. Yeah, I think you're going to get some animated. Yeah, like you're going to figure out ways to kind of just broaden your franchise. And and then, you know, this, then the flywheel effect, and then you broaden your ancillary revenue, you do the live, right. like you do all the podcasts, like you do all the stuff on that end sure. as well. Um, but I, I, would, I guess, I guess yeah. I just keep coming back to, I sure hope, and they're probably not, but like, and maybe this is just about the reporting, or maybe it's just about me having a realization that they may not be doing it in this way. It's that, like, not everything needs to be an ongoing HBO Right. series and and right. and i hope they're open to like if something sounds really good but it can't be an ongoing but it might be a good four-hour miniseries or a two-hour movie to your point like get green light that thing right like it doesn't they don't all have to be i sometimes i wonder if they're playing the game of we want to replicate game of thrones so we're going to try to we're going to try to do a series and if we can get it to work then we can play it off for seven years and it's like i don't know if that's the right play here 
I think there's definitely part of them that's like we want, you know, a seven a seven year show yeah. if, if if we can do it. But I think you look at something like Obi Wan, and I think the lesson from Obi Wan is you can make that a movie, and that movie condensed into two hours would have been incredible. Like that yeah. would have been the, the the movie all everybody wanted, what they would have kept talking about. But he didn't need to make it a six episode show, and I think everyone's watching each other and kind of thinking like, ah, well, if that's how they're approaching it, how do we approach a character like a Johnson or whomever it might be, you know, a Lannister, like whichever character that we're thinking about. Um, but I, I do think you'll definitely get one show that they want to be a seven year show. Like there's no question. They want to have another hit, whether yeah. or not they get it, who knows, but then I do yeah. think you'll get a lot of other smaller, much more limited series or movies right. because that's just Casey Bloys and his team are very smart. They've got a great franchise team over there. They're hyper aware of what's working for Disney and uh, Netflix and Amazon and what's not. Um, and so I think that will help them kind of figure out their their um, strategic path going forward. Also, the development time is really long. House of the Dragon is, I think, very clearly their attempt to replicate yes. Game of Thrones and have a series that can go on for a long time and can yes. run. But in the when we hear about seven other projects in development, it's hard to imagine that it isn't a whole bunch of other things like we hear about seven different Star Wars things in development or seven different Marvel things in development and that they're going to sprinkle it around because I do think that that would be um, I think you can get better stuff there because, as you said about Obi-Wan, which I enjoyed, but it did feel like very kind of weirdly paced and very much like a two hour movie that had been blown up into a six hour uh, miniseries. That same time, you know, as a kid uh, who loved watching TV, one of the things about the late 70s and early 80s when I was very impressionable as a TV watcher was the rise of the miniseries. Miniseries became a big thing on networks. And what was interesting about it was it was another way to do storytelling on TV that hadn't really been done for a long time, at least on American TV. And it was this moment that was kind of exciting because it was like, oh, they found a different thing they could do. And then it and they like it. it, it kind of petered out after a while and not all of it was was great but some of it was really fun and good and interesting and that's what i think of when i think of something like game of thrones or what marvel and star wars are doing which is the fun thing here is thinking outside the box it was a lot easier when everything was an hour or a half hour right and it was a comedy at half an hour or drama at an hour and then eventually things got like a little muddy but it was still also pretty easy and now with streaming it's like literally you could do whatever guys you could do what ever so think big picture don't don't allow yourself to be put in that box because if you've got a franchise that you believe in and there's a feature idea or a miniseries idea then go for it right like it doesn't all have to be in that same kind of like hbo prestige cookie cutter uh tv series box and i hope that they're doing that and you're right casey Bloys is really uh really smart and good at this so i imagine they are but um anyway house of the dragon august 21st Jon snow thing later maybe it's still just in development but i guess they they needed to get kit harrington to uh sign on because otherwise they can't make that show so he's like all right i'll, I'll do it if you make it uh, and I guess we'll see. I think a lot of the story is going to be told by how people react to, to House of the Dragon, right? Like, I mean, if that's, if that's a, uh, a complete bomb, then uh, maybe they say, oh, never mind. But we don't know and we won't know until it uh, until starting in late August. Um, wow, Game of Thrones. Can't even believe I'm talking about it. All right. Uh, it's time for Sports Corner. 
a segment that somehow I uh, introduced a while ago and is back now. We need um, audio for this, Jason. We got to give you like a sport, like it's like a sports corner. Well, and then it, it's just, you know. It should be my friend Tony Sindelar saying, hey, I invented sports corner because I did sort of <laughs> s- steal this from Tony. He's not the originator probably, but I think he inspired me. So thanks, Tony. Um Got some sports stuff. So we mentioned last time uh, Nesson, New England Sports Network, going over the top. And so Red Sox fans who are cord cutters will be able to just pay for Nesson and watch Red Sox and Boston Bruins games. Um, We got some feedback. Uh, Several people wrote in to point out that in Canada, Sportsnet is actually available the same way. Um, And so you can watch the Blue Jays uh, directly as a cord cutter. I feel like it's different. One, I guess the story really was it was the first time in in uh, Amer- in America in the United States, and not necessarily for Canada. But the other thing is, I don't know the Sportsnet thing doesn't quite feel right. And you're Canadian, so you can tell me it doesn't feel quite the same because that's a totally vertically in- integrated system, right? The team, the cable company, and the channel are all owned by the same company, so like it's Rogers. So. You know, it's not quite the same as, oh, geez, we can't do this because we owe the cable company. Oh, wait, we are the cable company. Well, well, what does the team think? Oh, we are the team. So it's not quite the same. Yeah. Yeah. The the whole the, the media space and the sports space in general in Canada is just like owned by two companies. And so it it's not the same at all. When you look compared to the United States, that's just a, a smorgasbord yeah. <laughs> of yeah. rights and owners. However, uh, Lister Kevin wrote in to point out that Bally Sports is now joining Nesson in the over-the-top yes. uh, regional sports network thing. This is interesting. Initially in five markets, uh, we'll link to the TechCrunch story in the show notes, five markets, they will be streaming Kansas City Royals, Milwaukee Brewers, Miami Marlins, Detroit Tigers, and Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, there are 14 other Sinclair-owned Bally Sports markets that this is not taking place in, and I think that says something about the specificities of each of their contracts, which you know about this with teams and with the RSNs and the and the cable companies in those local markets. This is all about those relationships, but it is another case where we now have fans of I guess seven Major League Baseball teams if they have no traditional cable service, can pay somebody to stream all of their baseball games. Well, all with an asterisk for all the ones that are, that are locked out for, because it's on Apple or ESPN or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other, the other angle I wanted to mention here, and we've mentioned it before that the, the story in TechCrunch is very specifically calls out the idea that this is in many ways, a reaction to the acronym that I never get right, but I wrote it in the show notes <laughs> this time, which is VMVPDs. These are, it's, it's, it's YouTube TV and Hulu plus live TV and sling and mine that I use, which is Fubo. They are virtual multi-channel video programming distributors. They're cable companies that come in an app over the internet instead. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are dropping sports channels. Actually, one of the reasons that I subscribe to Fubo is because Fubo started as a sports streaming service. And so therefore they prioritize sports channels in a yeah. way that most of these others are not because you have to pay per subscriber. It's very expensive. And so a lot of them are dropping them. And and the uh, sports channels are like, oh, no, <laughs> how do we get money from these cord cutters if the vmvpds are dropping us and the answer is over the top offer that is you know theoretically supplemental to your mvpd vmvpd but in, in truth i think there's some people who don't want youtube tv they really just want to see their 
you know, the Kansas City Royals and this will solve their problem for them. Yes. I mean, also the thing about Fubo, which I think is really interesting. And I was thinking about this a lot recently because we, my partner and I live in New York. Uh, we have YouTube TV um, and he's a Yankees fan. And yes, is not on YouTube. It was for a minute. It's why he signed up for it. It was. And then mm-hmm. they had a discrepancy and then they're not. And so the only one that's available on is Fubo. And I said, that's really interesting. And and we were talking about that, how Fubo, because one of the reasons that they're, they're slightly more expensive is because they're super focused on sports and because they're super focused on being like, you know, we want to help this out. And I do think that having some, a lot of, you know, like Bally and Nesson and having more of these kind of over the top options for specific sports fans in, in specific regions is going to help that. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm just a big fan of competition. I think we've existed in a moment with uh, our current tech overlords um, where competition has kind of gone away in a lot. It's been a consolidation heavy decade um, and that will still continue, but I'm hopeful that we have more competition to make things fairer for consumers. This is why antitrust exists. Um you know, it's all right. Why antitrust laws exist? So I think the more that I read and hear you talk about, actually, I love I love Sports Corner. The more that I read about what's happening with sports rights, the more that I'm like, I hope that we see more of these regionals kind of launch OTT um, uh, options for, you know, even though it's a it's a it's a smaller group of consumers overall. Just still, we have that option. So it's not just like okay, you know, one platform becomes the de facto, and you're you're paying 150, and you're paying for cable again, basically. You're like, I'm back to where I was with cable. So, so we'll see. Yeah. I have that um, thought. Like, I don't know if I would give up Fubo or, or equivalent if mm-hmm. I could just get my favorite sports teams via an over the top service, mostly because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's on there. Uh, I would have to really think about it. Um, but I, I can see that for a lot of people that it's really, I mean, the big frustration is if you just can't get it, like the, the, literally the, uh, VMPVDs are not going to give you your sports channel and then what do you do? And so that it, from that perspective, this is, um, the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. It sounds like the ball is rolling. I, I didn't, did I mention this last time? Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, said that they're seriously looking at this as, a, as an issue, too. So it sounds like baseball is waiting in the wings to maybe put together an all Major League Baseball thing, but it's going to take time. And in the meantime, um, there are definitely, you know, Sinclair and Nesson are both sort of saying we're going to just go ahead and do this. As, but, you know, again, Wrong. it's only five of 19 markets for Sinclair that they could Rob Manfred is like, we would like more people to watch baseball. We would like more people to watch baseball, right? I mean, (laughs) in in context of the Apple MLS deal, it's a similar kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, you got a younger audience that is probably not, they probably are cord cutters. And so how do you reach them? And with MLS, what they decided to do is it's a tiered approach um, where there are free games. They're going to be free games. They're going to be games that are for all Apple TV plus subscribers. And then they're going to be the games that are in the package. And that allows them to sort of like try to bring people along and make fans out of them. And that's another, that's one way to, to try it. Um, there's another sports corner item, by the way, ESPN renewed its deal with formula one for us rights. Um, 75 to $90 million per year. That is more than 15 times their current deal with Formula One. Behold the power of Netflix, by the way, increasing demand in the U.S. thanks to Need for Speed. Mm-hmm. 
huge thing. And then sources say Amazon bid more with an option to sublicense to linear. And it sounds like the report I read said that Formula One was a little concerned about not having more control over things being on a linear channel and that ESPN's deal includes most of the races on ESPN proper, although some races may end up on ESPN Plus, whereas Amazon, I think it was a little more shaky about like, would they be able to sell some races to linear with all of them being on Amazon? And so they uh, Formula One turned away from the Amazon deal and went to ESPN because they could offer streaming and linear together. Yeah, and I think I think that was the most striking thing about it. It wasn't even yeah, it wasn't even the, just that the deal that ESPN paid for this, which is seventy five to ninety million a year, compared to five million a year they paid in twenty nineteen, which just goes to show, to your point, the strength of uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix. Um, and Netflix also put in a bid for these rights, but you know I think it was kind of more of a show. I don't think they were serious about grabbing these rights. I think it was kind of like we want to be included in it to show that we're interested in kind of exploring that opportunity in the headlines. Um, but I think the the Amazon thing was the most telling part of that deal making with F1. Because I think you have um, F1 saying, we still want to be on linear. We think we have a huge audience on linear. We think we can grow on linear. And they actually have. If you look at the amount of people tuning into the races, it was like up to 1 million on average per race in 2021, I think, when they were looking at it. And that's a huge, I mean, that was a huge increase for them. So there is still an audience there. There's still an audience in bars. There's still an audience where they're like, we want to be here. We know that Disney and Comcast and Paramount are the three companies that can kind of say, well, we can put you on basic cable. We can put you on linear uh, broadcast. We can put you on cable. And so you're still going to be able to charge these affiliate revenues and they're still going to get a cut of it. Like it's still on the business side of it. It's still a stronger deal for them versus Amazon. If we think about what F1 on Amazon does, it's arguably better for Amazon than F1, right? It is the ability for the Amazon to say like, yeah. well, there is this audience who's super in drive to survive and that audience is going to come to Amazon and they're going to watch along with the F1 crew, but we're not necessarily going to grow it. It being on linear and on ESPN plus gives the ability to grow that total addressable market while still relying on kind of traditional revenue and traditional advertising packages that they really want. And what I will say so I have a friend at Disney um, who mentioned to me that the performance for F1 in terms of engagement on the digital side was one of their top three strongest performers in 2021. Like it outperformed expectations. There's a huge, like there's a huge growing audience for F1. And so I think if you're, if you're ESPN and you're Disney and you just lost MLS to, to Apple and you're looking for a tier two sport, that has a hyper-engaged audience that might be into spending more on a digital uh, a subscription to whatever else it might be that includes F1 news as betting continues to be a thing, like whatever it might be to be able to have that on ESPN regular, where it, you know, it's still your one of your biggest, biggest, biggest revenue drivers in the entire company. Um, if not still the largest driver um, in the company um, on top of being able to bring it over to ESPN plus where there's a growing audience on the ESPN plus side, who's interested in F1 and reading about it and watching it, whatever, and engaging with it, whatever it might be. It's like a perfect home for Disney. And it's a perfect home for F1. So it's like a harmonious relationship, but I do think 
the fact that F1 is saying we really want to be on linear still, like that's a, that's a big deal for us, I think says a lot about what's going to happen with the NFL um, going forward, where you have a company like Amazon or Apple who really, really want NFL rights. But even reports about like the NFL and Sunday ticket, where they're still saying like, we want to be available in linear to some extent. And Apple needs to figure that out if they want to be in that race, like they have to figure out how do you get there. So it's actually one of the rare moments where we talk a lot in this podcast about how Amazon and Apple have these huge advantages because they have more money than God three times over, but they don't have the linear offering that Disney who, you know, which is kind of right underneath them compared to, I would say an NBC or a Paramount where they're figuring things out or a CBS Disney can go, we still have ESPN. ESPN plus is growing. We're going to throw something on Hulu. We're going to throw like counter, you know, we're going to throw in like marketing initiatives like we'd seen over there as well. We have the second highest number of subscribers on streaming compared to globally right behind Netflix. And we still have a huge linear and cable base. And so Disney actually has this core advantage still within that space um, that I think Apple and Amazon really have to figure out, which is like, okay, do we, do we partner? Like, do we partner with an NBC? Do we partner with a CBS and say like, they're going to carry these games. We're going to air simultaneously, but we think it's going to work out well. And they go to the the bench with, with that. I don't know, but it's fun. It's like a fun question of like, mm-hmm. how do you figure this out and where, in this one moment where Disney has a really strong advantage? All right, let's. Uh, we're going to leave the sports corner behind for now. Maybe it will return. I think it probably will. And instead, we're going to go to uh, a couple of letters before we go. Uh, and and yes, keep. I know we haven't read a lot of letters lately. Um, we are doing a letters episode next month because we're going to yes. do. We're going to record two at once and then release them and give ourselves sort of like a little summer break. And so there will be a bonus episode, or I, I guess it won't be a bonus episode. It'll be another episode that will be all letters, so that we can run away for a month and uh, and and while all the news continues undoubtedly to break around us. Um, Here's the first letter. It's from Jonathan. It says, do you think it's inevitable that HBO Max will release shows that also air on their HBO channel like Barry or John Oliver the morning of broadcast rather than waiting until later that evening after they've aired? They already do this with shows that are HBO Max exclusive, so surely it's only a matter of time. I'm hoping the answer is yes. As someone who subscribes from the UK and has to wait until I have time to watch new shows on a Monday or Tuesday, despite having lots of free time on Sunday evenings. Jonathan. So uh, I don't know what you know here, but my initial thought is that it's perhaps contractual that HBO premieres need to actually run on the linear channel before they can be brought on onto um onto max but um it's something you said earlier in our conversation that i i i wanted to also throw out here which is this idea that uh what is hbo linear and does it have some sort of upper hand or could you premiere your if you decide that hbo max is great on thursdays could you just decide to premiere everything on thursdays and linear will catch up it sounds like they'll i mean i i can't imagine them doing that but here's an edge case from jonathan which is everything else drops at midnight but they hold last week tonight with john oliver until it airs on the east coast on hbo linear um any chance of that changing or is it just like it's too much of the the old school, we've got a linear channel and the premiere is going to be linear. I mean, yeah. So I think there's on the, the logistical side, the affiliate revenue HBO can demand is still really, really high. And that is a, 
you know, their parent company is trying to figure out how to get rid of $3 billion in debt right off the bat. Like I, that's, yeah. like, and, and it's still working for HBO. Like there's still like, as much as we need to talk about the declining pay TV audience, it is still a strong audience, especially in the U S um, and the money, the, the, the money that they make from international deals um, like with sky or whoever carries it is still extremely large. Um, and HBO Max is still launching, right? So as far as their concern is globally, HBO is still in every single market for the most part. HBO Max is not. And so they really still have to focus on that. But two, you know, they've done this before. So in terms of like, you know, the, con- the contractual stuff, um, and, and sorry, last point on that is that if I, I imagine that if they went and said, we're going to take everything uh, or take a bunch of stuff and drop it on HBO Max before it's on HBO, causing a lot of people to potentially drop the HBO package from their cable companies, um, I imagine the cable companies would have a, a lawsuit and they'd be mm. like, that's not like we that's not allowed. But that said, there was a, an instance in 2020 with industry, which is one of my favorite shows that is apparently coming back for a second season. I have no idea where it is. Uh, but they dropped those first three episodes or two right. episodes on HBO. And then the next six were then put on HBO Max ahead of time. And then they re- then they ran on HBO week after week after that. And so I don't know right. what happened with that specific case. And I don't know whether they could replicate that or whether they'd want to. But I do think, you know, as far as HBO goes right now, what, what's working for them is working for them. Like it's, there's no reason to kind of broke something that doesn't need fixing. Uh, sorry, to fix something that doesn't, that yeah. isn't broken. Um, I think it will change once HBO Max is more widely available in, in other global countries. Uh, and, and, and once that starts to happen, of course, like what is happening with the pay TV bundles? Like, let's see how far that continues to decline in the next two, three years. But for now, they, you know, most shows on the in the East Coast, at least they drop at 9 p.m. on HBO Max, the same time that they drop on HBO. Like there's a lot that kind of happens simultaneously. Yeah, it didn't, uh, it didn't used to be that way, but they actually no. do it now where because I think CBS uh, shows on Paramount Plus don't drop until the show has completed airing in your yes. region because of, again, contractual reasons. HBO now does it where the moment that it starts playing on HBO, the episode is unlocked because I definitely watched the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones that way because I'm on the West Coast. Yeah. 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 And and so that was very convenient because instead of waiting for the West Coast feed, I could watch it at my leisure either at six o'clock or seven or eight. I didn't have to wait till nine. And that was great. I'm going to push back a little bit on Jonathan here just to say that um, one one of the things that I hate is that a lot of um, a lot of shows get premiered at nine Pacific or midnight Pacific uh, on streaming services. And the idea they do that is they can say, well, it's everywhere in the world on Friday. But the problem is it means that by the time you get to the evening, assuming you're a person who has a job and doesn't watch TV until the evening and you're on social media, everybody in the rest of the world has watched it and is talking about it. And I, as as somebody who is a selfish person in the United States of America, looking at these companies that are headquartered here, I would rather they drop it in prime time either East Coast or West Coast primetime so that we get the first crack at the premiere. And what HBO does is that HBO holds it for when there's a big American audience for a release and that's when it drops. And so if people want to talk about House of the Dragon when it premieres in August, they the, that conversation starts the moment that drops on HBO, not yeah. at midnight Pacific when everybody in the U.S. is asleep and then by the time it, we get to it, it's already been a conversation for 18 hours. So yeah. I'm actually kind of a fan of how HBO does it. And I and I, I'm, I I get frustrated when like 
if you're going to drop a show at, at midnight or or at 9 p.m., 9 p.m. is not so bad Pacific, right? For for people out here on the West Coast, it's terrible for the East Coast. But when you drop it at midnight Pacific, it's just uh, the worst. I hate it. I, I have watched several Star Trek episodes at 11.20 at night because th- they go alive a little early. That's the se- dirty secret. They go alive a little early. Um, anyway, so I'm going to be that guy and say, sorry, Jonathan, I actually want more like HBO because I know you've got time on Sunday. I get it. I totally get it. But I would rather those premieres happen when I'm in, when, when I'm in TV viewing time instead yeah. of the next day. Uh, one more letter. Ruben writes, Ted Lasso is based on a character created for NBC Sports, produced and distributed by Warner Brothers Television Studios and released by Apple TV+. I know that studios attached to broadcasters can act separately to their broadcast division, but it seems like Warner Brothers missed out on having Ted Lasso as part of HBO Max. Is this Warner um, weighing up their different interests and concluding that they would rather make money by licensing the show to Apple instead of having the show on their own streaming service? If that's the case, it seems like they've handed Apple a major piece of intellectual property. Ruben, thank you for writing. I think the story here is maybe that when this deal was made, uh, Warner was in a very different place. Um, And also that this show may, they may have felt was not a fit for HBO as a brand at that point. That's my guess. I don't know if you know more about the background here, but I I think they were a little more arms dealery back then. And not every show is a fit for everybody's own streaming service. I'm sure they're kicking themselves now, of course. Yeah. And and what you're talking about, Ruben, is the Walt Garden strategy. Like that is what we're seeing much more of is um, you have a company like Disney who has um, 20th century, both on the film side and the TV side, um, saying, and Disney saying, like, we're going to take a lot more of those shows and bring them to Hulu or Disney Plus as opposed to selling them. So that's why you're seeing a lot of Hulu originals. Like, the quality is just really strong recently, and there's a lot more of them. Like, that's Disney making that decision. Um, but they have to, you know, legally, they have to bid on it. They, they can't just right. like, we're making the show and then we're, we're bringing it to, to our company. That's like vertical integration, which is fine, but they have to be able to say, we're going to bring this to competitors um, and, they, and they're allowed to bid on it. And so you have a company like Apple and they're into the idea of the, of the, of Ted Lasso. They need a show that's uh, within their wheelhouse, which at the time for Apple is kind of family friendly, kind of optimistic. Like that's what Ted Cook really wanted or Tim Cook. Oh my God, Ted Cook. That's what too many Ted's and Tim's. That's what Tim Cook, uh, you know, really wanted. And to Jason's point, if you're Warner brothers television and the majority of your partners are outside of Warner's actually like the majority of what you're selling to is outside of there because it's insanely great revenue for you can then bring in. And then your in-house programming team can then say like, okay, well we want to use this money to program, to, to, to create other content. And that content specifically going to be designed for whoever else it might be, you know, TBS or whatever it might be. Um, when you look at what HBO Max was not even a thing yet, or it was, you know, it was, it was, it was in development, but when you look at what they, they wanted that to be, Ted Lasso was kind of not necessarily the, the show that you take the the bet on. It's kind of like, right. oh, well, there might be an audience, but Apple's really willing to spend some decent money on it. We're going to give Apple the rights. Also, I think it was reported that Warner Brothers TV gets the linear rights back within 10 years. So WBTV and Warner Warner Media, which is now Warner Brothers Discovery, can say, well, we're going to run these reruns on TBS or whatever. We're going to sell these reruns to like CBS and we're going to make a ton of more money there yeah. versus having this on HBO Max. You know, I do think if we, I did some research on it. If I looked at the demographics of Ted Lasso, both gender and generational, like it actually is a great fit for HBO Max outside of HBO because it's exactly the type of show they need. But 
they don't need it as much as Apple plus Apple TV plus needed it. And that yeah. generates a really strong place in the negotiations to just generate additional revenue at the time. We know Warner AT&T was $150 billion in debt. Warner Brothers Discovery is now like, a, a, like I think it was like six or seven. I could be wrong on that billion dollars in debt. It might be higher than that, that they're trying to pay off. At some point, you kind of take the loss on the show that you think is really good, but you just don't think it's going to drive subscription growth or retention. And and it's, and some competitor is going to pay, you know, three times what it's worth or two times what it's worth, or they're going to pay what it's worth uh, in order to have it on their service. And you say, that's fine. Like we're going to go over there um, because we want to focus on really bringing in shows that we think is going to help us grow incrementally or exponentially. So I do think like what you're talking about, if you want to just research it, it's just Walt Garden. Like you can look up really great interviews with someone like Kevin Mayer, who is the former head of um, Disney Plus over at Disney. Now he is at Kendall Media. Um, he's buying a bunch of shows like he's he knows this world very well. And, and that kind of walled garden approach that all these studios are taking and the networks are taking and saying, like, we want to create the best shows for ourselves is really important. But if you're a company like a Disney a Warner um, or a, a Viacom uh, or excuse me, a Paramount or an NBC Uni, you actually have a lot of content. And so, but you still are selling, like you're still taking that bet. You're still hoping that your team figures out what the next Ted Lasso is and bets on it, but it might not be, it might be sold to someone else. And that's just going to continue to happen. It'll happen less as more companies take, take what's being produced in house and trust their team and bring them to their own streaming services. But we're, they're not going to stop selling shows and creating shows for others. Um, so you'll see more stuff like Ted Lasso happen just inevitably. Yeah, and that's the content arms dealer strategy versus the walled garden strategy. And a lot of smart companies are going to do both, right? Because yeah. you can make money uh, doing that. But I'm sure they will kick themselves when it's a hit. It ha- it happens, you know, but that's okay. They- they're getting paid, too, for Ted Lasso's success. They're, they're getting paid, too. Um, all right. I think we've reached the end. Uh, we are doing a letters episode next month, so get those letters in in the next couple of weeks. Uh, email us at downstream at relay.fm. And you can also, of course, tweet at Downstream Pod. Love to your mothers. Uh, our director of strategy, Julia, is Loudmouth Julia on Twitter, and parrotanalytics.com is where you can find all of her stuff. Uh, you can find me at jsnell on Twitter and sixcolors.com. And that's it. Until next time, Julia, when you will have a title for me. I'm going to have the uh, best go- title. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm relying on all my writer wait. friends. Can't wait. Uh, until then, uh, see you later. Bye, guys.